Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Uh, once again, recorded all over the place. <laughs> uh, I'm Calvin Reed, a contributing editor at Publishers Weekly. Uh, check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, or X or whatever you call it, at, at PW Comics World. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And this is Meg Lemke, Publishers Weekly's graphic novels reviews editor. And don't forget, you can subscribe to More to Come on the Apple Podcast app, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify. And on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash pwcomicsworld. And don't forget, you can also leave us a rating or a comment on any of the fine platforms on which you listen to this podcast. So please reach out and let us know what you like or dislike, because we love to hear from our listeners. All right, this week on More to Come, PW's graphic novel critics poll, this year's dual winners. All right, we'll get to that in just a second. Also, we're going to take a look at the top 10 comic stories of 2023 uh that's pw's top 10 comic stories uh we're also going to take a look at the comic beats creator surveys its annual survey of the comics community looking back now on 50 years of the direct market uh, steamboat willie goes into the public domain and dc excuse me disney my bad faces uh well a, a year of crisis so uh, we're back after the holidays. Happy New Year to everyone listening. Yes. Hope you had a great holiday. Two, four, six, eight. Will this be a year we hate? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, um, but why don't we talk about the PW Graphic Novel Critics Poll? Hey, Meg. Hey, all right. So this is a... One of my favorite times of the year, which is when we reach out to our stable of comics critics and ask them to make a list of their 10 favorite books of the year, like their personal favorites and also what they consider the best. They should be both. And then we do like, uh, you know, we put it through the machine and tally the votes. And it often is a surprise, you know, what comes to the top, what receives the most and majority votes. And this year it was a tie. It's a straight tie. We had um, 15 critics and two books tied. Uh, they were Impossible People, a completely average recovery story by Julia Wirtz from Black Dog and Leventhal and Roaming by Juliana Mariko Tamaki from Drawn and Quarterly. They each received seven votes from PW's panel of 15 critics. I do want to say everything was very close. This, the second place are at six votes. So, like, we had neck and neck. Uh, but it's unusual. It's only the second tie in the whatever 18 years the critics poll has been running. And I feel like, you know, in the way that we framed it, but I think this is accurate. It's a reflection to me of, of women rising up in uh, comics and the kind of maturity of these artists in particular who came of age and started in the industry during the zine web comic scene and have really matured into these like long in-depth works yeah uh, two terrific books 
I go ahead, think, Heidi. Oh, I was going to say, I think we all figured that Roaming would be one of the books of the year. Uh, yeah. Obviously, any collaboration mm. between the Tamakis is eagerly awaited, and it's it's another top-notch book. Um, and, you know, Julia Wirtz, Impossible People. I mean, Julia has just been turning out an incredible body of work mm. and uh, getting funnier and funnier and sharper and sharper as she goes through life. And, um, you know, well-deserved. It's it's mm. it's great to see to see them turning out great work. And, and, and the next two books – also, uh, Blood of the Virgin and the talk. Uh, I mean, the list is great. It was, guess what? It was a great year for graphic novels. Oh, you know, I mean, any definitely. Of these, oh, go ahead, Kevin. I'm just saying, any of these books could have been the A best book of the year, mm-hmm. but they yeah. really, uh, they deserve all of the praise that they get. Uh, certainly, did we talk about all of them on, at some point on Stargazing, Meg, if I'm not mistaken? Well, the top not only do they, could they be best books of the year, definitely the top, uh, five on our poll were best books of were the best, year. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they were TW's best books of the year. Among, yeah. Sure. I mean, which is, which is helpful for me to at least feel confirmatory that, you know, we make these selections and when we, you know, each book is reviewed at PW by a single reviewer, right? But so getting a majority of our really well established, thoughtful critics to actually be agreeing on a book is nice. And I actually really want to say that particularly about Julia's book because mm-hmm. it was a top, uh, best book of the year at PW of the only five that we have for adult comics. And I just, you know, I really love her work. So, you hope that, you know, I love the work, the reviewer loved the work, but apparently also a majority of the critics we pulled love the work. And so I felt like it was a bit of a dark horse that came up really on top. It was great to see that. Um, because as you're saying, the Tamaki's sort of a shoe in in some ways, not to diminish the incredible artistry of that book. Um, but I do find it really interesting to see them both. And as we, they're also both about mid-aughts in New York. I think there's something reflected mm-hmm. there around nostalgia and sort of where we are looking back currently at a, at a different time um, and actually pre-pandemic time. And there's something about the way that both of these stories look at community um, that reflects that, I think, in an interesting – and, you know, the appeal of it, I think, is reflective of that. Uh, well done, yes. And, of course, the, the, the critics poll also looks uh, – the, the other vote-getters, and you can go to the uh, – you can go to publishersweekly.com slash comics. And see the actual story and look back over the comments of the critics about uh, the runners up. Was there, you know, the, the critics poll also includes trends. Meg, was there any trends that jumped out at you that that uh, folks mentioned? So people definitely talked about manga and webtoons, which we've talked about a lot, which is interesting because they weren't necessarily the books that were hitting the winners of the poll. But people brought up the trend of seeing that. Mm. Um, output in publishing, and maybe we'll be seeing that reflected in the next couple of years in polls, right? Um, people talked about the decline of direct market. John DeBella, who I think is always really thoughtful in this, says superhero floppies attempt to cater to an ever-shrinking audience, the success of multimedia TV properties based on manga, you know, and uh, even like non-manga called Pilgrim have like created this buyer interest in graphic novels compared to the declining box office of superhero films. So like a lot of what we talk about here. Um Something I thought was really interesting is that um, D.W. McKinney talked about the, the kind of continued influx of textbook or discourse heavy graphic work, which is really trying to continue getting that adoption market. And that's compa- that's contrasted with uh, the attack of comics in schools, you know, from right wing mm. sources. So I think that I do I think we see that publishers still, are still definitely thinking of books as being adopted in schools and you see them trying to serve that academic market with the kinds of topics they're they're bringing to comics. Well, um, 
I don't think that's necessarily a conflict. I mm-hmm. think there may be a certain element of, oh, we want to sell to schools. What didactic topics uh, can we get? Can we put out that they will buy as opposed to the things they're banning? Yes, but I I think that there's like a surfeit of those books, absolutely, um, that are maybe more uh, teach the test, as we say, right? Yeah. And that's a little bit what McKinney was saying. She essentially said that, you know, some of them don't work well. She compared it to film yeah. industry conversion of books to film, you know, with just mixed results, right? Um, and in turn, you know, Rob Kirby, who's himself a big queer comics advocate and whose own graphic memoir, the queer love story, Marry Me Little, Marry Me Little also released this year. You know, he talked about the champions in the small press world who are really putting out radical books, Silver Sprocket and Street Noise in particular. Um, I think the quote is, as if an answer to the infuriating movement of book banning, they continue to publish powerful books from marginalized voices that take a firm stand against depression. Well, there was a lot of conflict in 2023, and it looks like 2024 is going to have even more. Um, and, you know, it's definitely something that the critics all noted. I mean, the book banning, mm-hmm. you know, when we get to the survey, obviously that was one of the biggest stories uh, of last year. And you know what? The year before, and I'm afraid it's going to be one of the big stories this year, although the courts are starting to recognize the First Amendment is um, making a lot of these laws that they're trying to pass obsolete because they go against it. So, yeah, more to come. And on that note, uh, among the most read stories on uh, comic stories on uh, the PW published last year, obviously the book ban, the fight against book bans. Meg, you want to talk about those? Yeah. So, um, our colleague John pulled out the numbers. He's a numbers person to see what our top stories were this year in the comics category. And the number one story was our interview with Marjan Satrapi, who talks very directly actually about book banning and the experiences that she's had having Persepolis banned. Um, the, you know, I think it particularly did well though, because she says she's done with comics forever, which is quite funny because now she has a new uh, anthology she brought together with a lot of comics in it coming out in the spring. But that wasn't the top story. Um, and I was delighted to get to do that interview personally. And then up in the following, there's, um, the library stories that, uh, Heidi did. That's one of our biggest stories of the year too. Librarians strike back against comic bans. Um, but I recommend everyone take a look. It does a little 10 to 1 countdown. Um, I would particularly like to call out that this is sort of lovely and unsurprising. One feature on manga that had like a couple different links um, hits the list multiple times. Like that, yeah. Deb's, Deb's stuff just is so popular. Yeah. Which says a little bit about <laughs> the popularity of the category. Exactly. Yeah, totally. That says a little bit how good Deb is. I yeah, know. Absolutely, She's so good absolutely. at promoting it as well as absolutely. people come to her as <laughs> an expert. But you even know, the sidebars jump to the top of the exactly. list. Exactly. Like one big feature that has a couple different links that it, it, all, it yes. hits our top ten. Well, I want to point out one thing is that as difficult as, uh, you know, a lot of these challenges are that we're facing, uh, as I'm looking at the story on the PW website, um, mm-hmm. I see the bestseller list for this week and the number one book overall is a graphic novel, Winter Turning, a graphic novel, Wings of Fire, graphic novel number seven by Tweety Sutherland and Mike Holmes. I mean, this is a YA graphic novel, number seven in the series, uh, this Wings of Fire. I, I guess it's based on a YA prose series. I'm not. Oh, yes. 
I am very yeah. well aware of it. Yes. My daughter is literally in the other room drawing dragons right now. <laughs> I should, I wish I could put them up on the right. podcast. <laughs> Not yeah. a visual medium, but she has these books and she has read this exact book about 20 times over the break. Wow. Already. Well, yeah. according to, uh, I just clicked through to the subscribers only. According to BookScan, it already sold 96,000 copies in its first week. So that's pretty healthy. That's a pretty yeah, good number. I'd say so. Nothing wrong with that. Um, and yeah, that is the only graphic novel in the top ten this week. But you know, hey, listen, there's life in them. There are comics still. All right. There's always going to be more to come on that. Yes, that's yeah. for sure. Um, well, the other big year-end feature is uh, the Beat has its annual creator survey, uh, which I just blasted out to everybody on my mailing list, and you know, get the answers. It's usually like. I'd say it averages about 50 answers and, you know, although when I first started it would get 100 because people didn't have social media so they had to have to find some way. But I will say this year actually Julia Wirtz contributed um, her answers to it and we asked uh, people what was the biggest story of the last year what was and what they think will be the big story of the next year and um, no surprise the things that we've been talking about in the podcast mm-hmm. were mentioned again and again. Um, the book bans, um, comics broke me, and just really an overall sense of anxiety about the direct market and also just page rates and getting sure. fairer treatment for creators and uh, unionization. That is mentioned many times. And, um, you know, I, I thought it's it's usually a, a pretty good snapshot, but uh, I thought there was a lot of really great comments from people this time. And a lot of publishers um, chimed in. Liz Francis of Street Noise, Terry Nantier, Van BM, Philip Sablik of Boom, and um, and and many others. Uh, so uh, it was it was um, very interesting as I was editing this piece and reading the comments. Yeah, and I, I mean, and, and I I noticed also quite a few. Um, uh, what, what expressions of concern um, uh, about the periodical uh, format? Well, yes, the periodical is on the endangered list yet again. And you we've know, talked yeah. about that constantly here on the podcast. But this time it's really, um, you know, it is um, – there's a there's a systemic change in in just how business is being done. A lot of people go back to the distributor wars, the early pandemic. Well, Eric Reynolds, yes. uh, you know, he had some pretty fiery. We could always turn to Eric to plain talk. Uh, the big comics publishers continue to cannibalize the winnowing customer base by pumping variant covers into the marketplace like Exxon Mobil pumps carbon emissions. Distribution <laughs> exclusives continue to cost retailers a greater percentage of every dollar sold. Amazon continues to tighten their grip on consumer spending, further marginalizing any publishing that isn't algorithm friendly. An increasingly fallow media landscape and looming election shit show will make getting any national pub- publicity for comics increasingly difficult. The medium of comic storytelling is healthier than ever in the mainstream book world, but the comic book market from which it sprung has never faced more adversity. Um, so, now, yeah. Yeah, I will say kind of uh, the flip side of that is some um, comment. I'm going to have to scroll to them, so it's going to take me a little bit because um, I'm on my janky old computer, and uh, it thinks that the beat has a virus. 
So it takes a long time. <laughs> yeah, I, maybe it does. I, no, it doesn't I, because this is the only doesn't. computer that thinks it has a virus. And apparently if you don't have the right Chrome installed, then you're, it, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah I, I'm not going to you know, I, I, I also felt that the, the survey, I thought I felt, uh, I saw, you know, more than a handful of comments about, uh, you know, a closer look at what is today's marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, I, I may think what, what Alison Sampson, wasn't she on your panel? Uh, she Heidi? was, she was, yeah. Um, Euro- yeah, European comics or foreign yeah. comics. Uh-huh. Uh, I, 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 her comment about, I think what, you know, looking forward to 2024, that, and I'm paraphrasing here uh, that the that the community will accept the reality of where the market is now. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, and to that to that end, diversity, uh, uh, a multiplicity of genres available. Uh, all of the stuff, once again, that we talk about on the show all the time about the well, comics market today. Well, we are just living in Dickensian times. It is the best of times, and it's the worst of yes. times. So yes. Philip Sablik, who's the, the uh, publisher at Boom, he said he kind of said the same thing Eric did, but he said it in Philip speak. Yes. He says, "What uh, the, I asked the question, what do you want to see change the most to the comics industry in 2024? And Philip says, our outlook. Yes, we are in a period of tremendous change, but in many, many ways, the medium of comics is thriving like never before. The challenges we are facing as an industry are, by and large, not particularly unique to comic books, but the medium and its seemingly endless well of creativity and innovation is. Mm. Let's celebrate that in 2024 and build the future we all hope to see. And, you know, that's the thing. As long as we have good material and good comics you know as long as there's there's things that people want to read which we absolutely still have i mean look at this dragon comic book at number one selling a hundred thousand copies last week yep Um, and you know dan klaus monica and the tabakis and julia wirtz um you know we're going to make it through but the times they are changing yeah, just an incredible uh, diversity of genres available to readers. I mean, we're going through, in my opinion, a market correction. We've never had so many readers who can who can go out and say, you know what, I want to read this kind of comic, which unfortunately may, may not be the kind of comics, for instance, that that I grew up on. Well, or, that was mentioned. Yeah. That was mentioned a few times too. Just that yes, it people was. could love comics and they don't read any of the same things. Um, so, but it's having an incredible impact on the marketplace, on where people buy comics, what kind of comics they buy, and of course, what kind of comics, um, you know, the 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 retail channels can sell. Yes, and that really is the big question. Well, Terry Nantier had the log line. He says. You know, uh, anyway, I'm not going to do Terry speak, Um, but he says that comic (laughs) stores (laughs) need to realize that they are comics, bookstores, not comic book stores. Uh, Pretty (laughs) clever, clever little, clever little bummer. You know, I want to, this has not come out as we're recording this, but it will be going up tomorrow morning, which is Friday. Uh, We also do the person of the comics industry person of the year voting. Um, for, and, you know, Meg, just like the critics poll where people picked a lot of different things and, you right. know, like you had a tie, like they're really, it was a 14 way tie. Wow. So I oh, had wow. to really, but I, you know, I look at all the answers. I look at all the picks and I, I, I get a sense of what, what people are really trying to say. And, uh, so I think that the, 
the person of the year is Sloan Leong, who uh, founded the Commerce Cooperative, helped co-founded it with a bunch of other folks in uh, the wake of the death of Ian McGinty and the mm-hmm. Commerce oh, Broke right. Me mm-hmm. movement. And I think for wow. creators, I mean, certainly there's this just talking about the, the, the diversity that we've been talking about. You know, there is this influx of young creators who are who are not beholden at all to the the big two and they were touched very much by the death of Ian McGinty and the whole the, you know the comics pro mm-hmm. movement really hit mm-hmm. home with them and they all had stories about it and um you know Sloan and uh, a few other folks have created the comics cooperative which is just i mean it's kind of what it says it's like a bunch of creators who are supporting each other's work and promoting it together and um you know, it's not even clear yet what it's really going to be or, or, you know, what the end result of it is. But people are are are, are trying. I, I also want to mention the co-founder, Zach Hazard Valpon, Nero Gallos O'Reilly, Remini Yee, Joan Zara Dark and Aaron Lossley. Um, so, uh, you know, the person of the year definitely reflected that. Now, the other one, I always have like a publisher of the year. Can you guys guess what the publisher of the year was? Hmm. hmm. Some manga publisher? Well, <laughs> so not, not in the webtoon group. or <laughs> not in the group I talk to, but um, <laughs> no distillery. A lot of people oh, you know, you're and, right. Absolutely, a lot of mentions of distillery. Yes, yes, uh, and uh, I yes. think it's a testament to uh, again the trust that Chip Moser and David Steinberger mm-hmm. have built up over the years, and also. I mean, they got some guff for it, but they're trying something new. They are trying different things with distillery, you know, even if it's digital delivery or digital collectibles and, you know, they're a marketplace where you can sell your own stuff. I mean, it's different and it's coming for some criticism and some eye rolling. But you know what? That's the other thing people mention. We're going to need new business practices and they're trying yeah, and I would say that David Steinberger has a much better business head than 99% of the people in comics. Yes. So even if some aspects of his business plan make me raise my eyebrows a little bit, I can see that maybe I'm not the target audience for that. It may well be other sources of funding who like that aspect of the business plan because he's a pretty savvy guy, and I think even if he's putting some – digital collectibles in there that sound a little funky to us venture capital may just love that yeah they're definitely more like a tech company than a traditional publishing company yeah um, well, in well how they, they hype themselves as well you know yeah, in how they especially in how they hype themselves yeah, absolutely. far more in how they hype themselves than in their actual end product but like that's not unheard of like blank street coffee is a coffee store but they got funding by marketing themselves as a tech company. <laughs> Not kidding you. Yeah. Um, WeWork was an office rental company, but they got funding by marketing themselves as a tech company. You know, at least Steinberger is going to be giving an actual real product. So, you know, more power to him if it gets him the cash. Yeah, and the people they publish own their comics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, uh-huh. they're an ethical publisher who may be doing some razzle-dazzle to get funding. Yeah, they're trying a lot of different things. But I mean, I think they know, generally do have technological mm-hmm. innovation as what's distinguishing them, which sometimes ownership as part of a business model can be. It's tied in this case to the technological platform that they're 
putting forward, right? Like the concept of collectibles and some yeah. kind of residuals. I mean, I don't know how big yeah, a part of but the, it's, their physically and the collectible yeah, side is. I, at I this feel point. like they're putting. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I feel like the digital collectibles aspect, which has a little bit of a whiff of NFT to it, for all they're not calling it that anymore because NFTs are no longer trendy. I kind of think that that's sort of a value added for the hungry tech investor. Um, and yes, if it pays out for the writer or creator, that's great. But I kind of think that at the end of the day, what we're going to get out of what we as the audience and what creators <clears throat> are going to get out of distillery is a comic that is published. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, the collectibles and are just mm. the razzle dazzle. Yeah. You really got a great number of people reporting on this, Heidi. Jamila Rouser is on here. Jeffrey Brown. Yeah, that's right. I, I, was, I, I was I was surprised. What you know? I, I I send out a email and then you know I don't look because you know watch pot never boils. And so when I finally did open up the 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 Google sheets and see who had answered, I was like, oh, nice. Well, people had a lot to say. People had a lot to say. So I like that yeah. John Patrick Green's guilty pleasure is sleeping. <laughs> I really feel that right now, John Patrick Green. Well, I, you know, I'm a big John Patrick Green fan. I've He's known a him sweetheart. since he was like a, you know, a young, youngin in school. Mm-hmm. Also very popular with the children. Yes. Um. He's <laughs> um, you know, I want to segue a little bit though into, um, what we're going to be talking about a lot in 2024, which is the fate of the direct market. And, mm-hmm. but before we move forward, uh, I want to call out Milton Greep who uh, spent all of 2023 doing this kind of massive look at the 50-year history of the direct market. And, you know, I think it was a bit of a statement piece for Milton since he was there at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and But it, there's some really foundational people that he talked to and, uh, you know, some of the early early retailers and some current retailers and just yeah, a lot of fascinating people, a lot of history that we really should heed. And, you know, he talks a little about the fate of the the comic shop and points out that we're facing tough times. But he comes back to the idea of the community, you know, the community building that happens at a great comic shop. And as something that um, he says, the strength of the direct market has always come from the striving of thousands of entrepreneurs, all doing everything they can to survive and thrive. And I'm confident that solutions will be found and retailers will continue to move forward. As a result, I believe that the comic store has a long-term future, especially as a place where comics, graphic novels, manga, and other geek culture categories come together. I mean, look, yeah. he's absolutely right. I mean, the strength of the independent uh, – Bookstore market now uh, can certainly be tied to uh, a qu- uh, over the time and uh, an understanding that these stores needed to, to to work harder at seeing themselves as part of the community that they were the site of creativity and community activity that uh, it, it's not all about Amazon um, so yeah because yeah. they are yeah. to connect with an earlier comment I mean. Or, or, or Terry's comment. I mean, they're specialty bookstores in yeah. many ways. Comic book stores. Yeah, they totally are. And just as a little, you know, one more plug, um, just before the holidays, I wrote a big piece that kind of wrapped up the then current dialogue about retailing. And there's, there's been a lot of talk, some of it absolutely idiotic, 
Um, but there's a lot of concern from some very smart people. So I have a piece up on the beat called, uh, oh, I need, I need to change the, uh, template on this. I'm just looking at it right now. Uh, comics are dying. Comics aren't dying, but they are changing. And that's got people mm. scared. And yes. I think that's a theme for where we're going with all this. So. And, and, and just to, uh, uh, um, emphasize, uh, what you said about Milton Grieve and his, and this incredible, because what what Milton has done is put together really an incredible um, uh, range of stories and interviews uh, about the whole history of the direct market, you know, uh, that really carried over from what he did at New York Comic Con. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was an yeah. element of it. That was that was an element of it. But really, event, but yeah, you can go to ICV, icv2.com and really yeah. go look through really uh, multiple articles um, and interviews, including one with. Uh, Milton himself. Yes. Well, you know, nah, 2024 is the 20th anniversary of the beat. Oh, is and, it? Wow. Oh, yeah. And from oh. then, yes. Yeah, so uh, I haven't really thought, I have a few, I have a few things planned, but um, I might just be doing some looks back at the history of the graphic novel market, uh, which really coincided with the beat. You know, I remember. Sure. And, you know, Calvin coming to me and asking uh, me to, you know, come to PW and, and do some business stories and uh, me learning all about the things that were happening and writing about it. And um, so, yeah, there's uh, there's the history of the aughts and the tens is yet to be really written. So excellent. Uh, we need to get on that. We so. truly have more to come. Uh, oh, yes. And certainly uh, to take a close look at the beat. Yes. Uh, which has been absolutely step by step with uh, and led and PW in many ways uh, in talking about uh, how this market has transformed. Absolutely. Yes. Well, we'll see. Uh, well, you know, talking about all the chaos, it's not just comics. There's chaos everywhere. And um, Kate, Disney is facing <laughs> so much chaos. chaos. So much chaos. So, listeners, I am what you might call an amateur <laughs> uh, intellectual property geek. Disney has been the hidden hand and sometimes not so hidden hand between extending copyright limits in the United States that the big fear of Disney was always that Mickey Mouse would go out of copyright. Steamboat Willie, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon, would go out of copyright. And then people would make their own scandalous Mickey Mouse creations. <laughs> and this just can't stand. We cannot have uh, a X-rated Mickey Mouse parody sold under the counter at um, some comic book stores for adults. No, we can't have that. Um so Disney invested literally millions of dollars into pushing copyright back again and again and again, um, just trying to protect their business. Yeah, they got Sonny Bono to help them there, remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the digital memory, the digital millennium copyright act, the DMCA just looms large and evil in my mind. Um, Really, like a lot of things that have been out of print for 
decades still couldn't be published free online, even though they were orphaned works. Their creators were long dead. Their publishers were long gone. There were no copies in print. You still couldn't put them free online because theoretically they were still in copyright to someone somewhere, maybe theoretically far longer than initially intended by the concept of, of copyright, which was originally life or life plus 20. Um, it just kept getting longer and longer. So finally, um, there have been no more renewals and extensions to copyright in the United States. And Steamboat Willie has, has hit the cop, the, uh, copyright free land. You can watch Steamboat Willie for free. Now, does Steamboat Willie little black and white Mickey Mouse cartoon look exactly like what we think of Mickey Mouse today? Not exactly, but pretty damn close. Um, so. Heidi, what what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it's important to note that Disney still owns the trademark to Mickey Mouse. A trademark yes. never goes out of yes, never goes out different of different uh, story. Yes, a trademark and copyright are two separate things. So you know, they're always going to have own the image that we we understand today of Mickey, uh, you know, as the mouse with the black ears and the the big smile. Um, uh, so you know, when it, when a when something goes out of copyright, that just means that story can be used. So, if but, something- but you can also do creative works based on that story. You can do creative works, yes, based on that story. But like I said, if you suddenly slap Mickey Mouse on, you know, your brand of uh, baking soda, that is a trademark violation. So, yes, um, yeah. But, but even yeah. so, that's not nothing because. No. Immediately thereafter, people had their Mickey Mouse products ready to go. <laughs> yes, they did. And uh, so, listen, every I mean, Disney worked desperately to uh, extend that copyright law because when it was made, you know, the, the people who made the laws didn't foresee the incredible reach of media and the Internet and and movies and radio shows and books and pajamas and baking soda and everything that would come from it. So, you know, they didn't foresee how valuable these properties would become. But even and, if they did, they might not have wanted to extend right. copyright that far because that was not the initial concept of copyright. Correct. correct. The basic concept of copyright is to protect the creator of the product. Correct. And like I said, I, you know, to me, it's like, Hey, Disney's got a trademark as well. They should, you know, mm-hmm. they, they own the, they own that. And yeah. You know, we don't want to see people putting Mickey mouse on, you know, pornography and, and children seeing things they shouldn't see. I mean, obviously there's some things that aren't proper, but you know, guess what? Air pirates funnies. Of course they did get, um, they did get uh, prosecuted and were found guilty of, uh, but you know, Obscenity. But today they would not. No, today they wouldn't. But they still couldn't do a story with Mickey Mouse in it, you know? No, they could. They could do a story with Mickey Mouse, but only if it was Mickey Mouse as he appears in Steamboat Willie. Because um, they are now, there's now an untitled horror comedy coming out from Stephen Lamort, um, which will be a Steamboat Willie horror film in which Steamboat Willie is a steamboat slasher murdering unsuspecting steamboat passengers. 
um, which is definitely not a transformative work that Disney would be thrilled about, but too bad, so sad, out of copyright. Yes. Um. So, listeners, uh, there's just no disguising it. We had a little break in our conversation due to technical difficulties, and now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. <laughs> and and yeah. in, the, in the tech storm, uh, you know, Meg joined us, Meg Lumpke joined us to talk about the critics poll and a few other things, but she has had to, um, well, she vanished really. We don't know where she is, but we hear a strange tapping on the window. So, um, <laughs> yes. no, Meg had to, had to leave us. So uh, it was great having her and uh, damn you technical difficulties. <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, where do we but, leave off? So yeah. <laughs> well, we, well, Kate was giving a, a master class in in copyright and Steamboat Willie. And so, so Kate, right. what do you think? So I, I just, um, when I was talking about, you know, the, the original founders of this copyright law didn't know how far it was going to go. Um, hmm. but yeah, you know what? Get used to it. You know, suck it, Disney. Suck it, everybody, because this is the first domino to fall. But more and more things are going to come into public domain. Uh, yes. Kate, what do you think will be the result of this? Well, I mean, I think, I think a lot will change and a lot won't. On one hand, it means that corporate giants are just going to have to be, you know, get ready to get used to the idea that versions of their property, albeit older and different and certainly not the ones that are currently, you know, common public property of the mind will be the ones that will be common public property commercially. I mean – you know, 1930s Superman is not today's Superman. 1920s Mickey Mouse is not today's Mickey Mouse. But versions will come into the public domain and companies will just have to deal with it. Um, honestly, a lot of, you know, copyright advocates. I mean, I wouldn't call myself an advocate because I'm too lazy for that. But I'm certainly in the cheering section for copyright advocates um, have been very concerned that this day would never come, that they would just mm-hmm. use their billions to keep pushing it back. But it seems like, at least for now, things are finally coming into the public domain for the first time in a long time. And so that means, you know, a lot of things that maybe have fallen by the wayside will now find a resurgence because you can actually get them, because people can actually make versions, because things are no longer in copyright hell. Um you know, don't be surprised if you start hearing more about Nero Wolf again. You know, <laughs> don't be don't be surprised if, um, you know, there aren't such a limited number back to comics, a limited uh, number of beloved characters who have smaller companies making comics about them. It won't just be Tarzan anymore. Um, other other things will be at the point where people can actually use them and create new things because your copyright is still protected as a creator. You have 70 years to at the very least without even renewing it to do whatever you want and nobody else can, can touch your copyright. That's more than enough. For and I mean, that, regular is as purposes. copyright was intended. I mean, it yes. was intended for things to go into the public name eventually. 
Yeah, yes. and it was, it was intended to pro- protect heirs too. I mean, I think that's yes. like, yes. an important part of it. That's why the renewal period was originally, you know, just to protect the heirs of this IP. Yeah. Right, you, but it's, you know. it's not yeah. supposed to be eternal. No. The concept yeah. was that it was never that it was supposed to be eternal, or even as long as it is now. Yeah. The concept was just that you, the creator, are not going to be ripped off by a pirate. And that, you know, say your kids will still get the profit from your work, yeah. not your great grandchildren and their great grandchildren, not some copyright holder that bought the IP from your heirs 90 years ago. Um, you know, there comes a point where it just becomes too restrictive. Um, yeah. And I'm glad that uh, Disney has uh, let this one go. Because I think they will find that it will not actually get in the way of their own doing business. Right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it doesn't cover modern Mickey anyway. No, no, it only yeah. covers up till that point. It doesn't cover Mickey's Christmas Carol, and that's the most important one. So, <laughs> you know, oh, a Christmas Carol. Say, yeah. who wrote that? Huh? Wait a minute. <laughs> You're right. Not, not Disney. Yeah. Um, um, well, just to segue, though, a little bit. I mean, this is just... Uh, a start of Disney's issues and not just Disney, but uh, the entertainment business in general is in complete chaos right now. And uh, everybody but Netflix, Netflix still has the golden, uh, uh, they seem to have the golden chokehold on uh, viewers. But um, uh, well, Netflix is running into some difficulty with Rebel Moon because um, it's a little hard to say. Oh, we're definitely going to have an, a director's edition of our streaming movie come out on streaming in two months. Yeah. And people are like, well, why don't we just watch that then? Why are you making us wait two months? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm not, Netflix is not perfect. Far from it. But, uh, one of the things going on at Disney is, uh, the <laughs> Ike Perlmutter is back. Um, he's bought his friends. He's back with Nelson Peltz, an, an yes. activist investor. And then this time they bought Jay Rizzullo, who is a former Disney executive. And the three of them are trying to do some kind of hostile board takeover. Uh, and Bob Iger, who, who none of them can stand, um, is trying to fend them off. And, you know, he's considerably weakened from a year ago because of Disney Plus is losing a lot of money. ESPN is losing a lot of money. Uh, the MCU is not the greatest thing on God's earth anymore. And Disney princesses, all the great brands, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all the great brands are faltering. Um, but it's not just Disney. It's, you know, look at Warner Brothers, the, the mess that's going on there. So, um, and, oh, yes, another merger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, another merger. Yeah. No. no, 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 no. You know, one of the things I was, I wrote a little story about this, but I, I was trying to do a little dive on Nelson Peltz. And he's actually famous for having taken over Heinz right. and, uh, back in the aughts. And so he took over Heinz. And what do you think they did? What do you think is the whole plan? They laid people off. Yeah, they laid people off. They canceled Christmas parties. Yeah. They closed yeah. plants. They trimmed off, you know. They saved huge on paper clips. Yeah, saved big money on paper clips. And then they sold it off to um, Warren Buffett. And then he had for a ridiculous amount of money. And then he laid off more people because that's what you do. And then guess what? They had a really flimsy company that uh, was unable to launch a new product. They tried to launch something called Mayo Chup. Can you yes. imagine what that is? <laughs> I don't it's want to. too absurd to even guess. Yeah, but, but you know, and then Warren <laughs> was said, oh, it's mayonnaise mixed with ketchup. 
<laughs> yeah. Like a child, uh, like a five-year-old can make. Anyway, my whole point is Warren Buffett was like, oh, I guess I overpaid. He lost $4.5 billion on that. And you know what? That's what's going to happen to, that's yeah. what's going to happen to Disney, though, if this happens. The same thing that well, happened to Warner Brothers, which was one of the proudest studios, the oldest studio, and now it's in tatters. That's what's going to happen to Disney if these. Right. Movies. Well, to be fair, Disney has marshaled their forces against Perlmutter. So Disney secured support from Value Act Capital Management. Yes. And also from Blackwell Capital, and Blackwell's a huge name. Yeah, but Blackwell um, has their own board slate, so that could. Well, be they have their own stuff. desires, but yes, it's not Perlmutter. So, well, it's, yes. it's the only thing that's going to save Disney is somebody with some vision about creating yes. content, not about how many people they can lay off or who they can bully into a lower salary. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah, it's absurd to think that they can cost cut their way to. Uh, a new future. Yeah, uh, so you know. We'll, guess what? The the what's the Mayo Chup twenty twenty four? Indiana Jones meets Star Wars. That'll do it. That'll be great. Why not? Uh, yeah, why not? Hey, listen. The you know the the big thing about all this and how it affects comics is you know this is another part of the huge paradigm shift that we're facing though. As the streaming wars have pretty much ended in a steaming, smoking ruin of a battlefield. That comics publishers were really relying on those streaming options and getting their shows on the air and to sell a lot of comics. And that is not happening as much anymore. You know, it was a, it was a gold rush yeah. for a while. Now, so I, I, again, a lot of people mentioned this in the survey. That said, content is still king, queen, duke, princess, and vizier. And IP is still the most valuable thing there is. So, um, you know, we might see a slowdown. I'm sure people will be turning to comics again for some ideas. Um, but, yeah. yeah, it's all changing. I mean, to be fair to Disney, it's a huge ship. It's going to take a while to turn around. I mean, there had been rumblings that during the Marvel Imperial phase at Disney, things, other things had been slowly sliding downhill. Um, and so even though Iger's back, if he can write the ship, it may take him a while to write the ship. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Well, yeah, it's not, it, it, listen, there's going to be a lot, of, there's going to be changes. There's going to be, yeah. There's going, to, there's there's going to be layoffs. I mean, it there has to be because a little bit of tightening, belt tightening. Everybody's got to tighten their belt. It didn't help having what was it? Eight months? How long was the strike? Oh yeah, well, I mean, that's the other thing. <laughs> that didn't help. That that dragged on and on, and you know, now 24 is especially uh, on the cinema is a disaster. I mean, so many yeah. releases got pushed back. Nothing was in the pipeline. So yeah, uh, it's 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 a and big. Then people don't know whether they want to go to movie theaters anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but they still like books. Yeah. Remember that, well, that survey that said that? Many, even <laughs> how about that? still like printed books. So mm. I feel like publishing is still pretty strong. Now, one other little story for this week, um, and I don't even know the details of it, but boy, is it juicy. Oh. <laughs> um, but it doesn't really affect our end of the business, but it is a huge million-dollar business. Now, if you've been to a Comic-Con in the last 20 years, you've probably seen a big CGC booth. Comics, <laughs> I don't even know what CGC stands for because I'm just not interested in it. They're the slabbers. Mm. You know, they take your valuable, they take your comic, they give it their their experts, grade it, and then they put it in plastic, in theory, forevermore in a hermetically sealed plastic 
box that keeps your comic perfectly rated and uh, then you can, you know, sell it or it goes up in value and you're a millionaire. So, um, but, you know, there's a lot of super valuable comics that have been slabbed and sold, you know, a 9.8 issue of, you know, copy of Amazing Spider-Man or whatever. But there has been, now this just broke over the holiday and um, I don't know about Calvin and Kate, but I pretty much took two weeks off. So I'm still c- yeah. getting up to speed. Me too. Yeah, same so, here. But if you were a CGC fan, you did not, because it turns out that some, and this is where it gets really crazy. So I'm just going to try to give the layman's version of it. But it's like people would send in their comic to be graded, and then they would get back the slab comic, and it wouldn't be their comic. It would be a lesser quality uh, actual physical mm-hmm. copy of that comic. And so somebody at CGC was stealing these comics, and then they would slab those and sell those for a lot of money. So, um, yeah. And I think in, in certain ways, there's probably, if there's some that have been caught, there's probably a lot more that have gone under the radar yeah. because theoretically, the idea of slabbing it is that it will keep it perfectly in the condition it was when it was graded until you break the package. And so therefore, if you don't want to totally invalidate the entire grading that you just paid for, you're never going to open it and see that everything's exactly the same. And only if you have a, a, a very, very sharp eye and a good memory will you notice that this particular slabbed issue copy is the same copy of that issue as the one you sent in. Right, right, right. Um uh, but I, it's, it's, there's a lot of consternation in the collector community. Uh, CGC has admitted that hundreds of books have been impacted. The scope of the scandal is still being investigated. It could oh, be it's got to be more than that. Or it could be the tip of the iceberg. And I, um, this is, I, like I said, there is a, a big – look, we don't talk about the collectible market here, but this is another multi-million dollar uh, part of the industry that has been uh, – huge over the pandemic i mean it, it you know prices soared and everything so and cgc has been the temple uh of this and uh the temple is being brought down and where this is going to go uh i don't know uh because i again i don't i you know once i i got something slapped once i tried to pry the thing open it just doesn't mm. it doesn't it doesn't compute to me but mm-hmm. I understand to collectors it does but i i talked to a few people who are into the collector's market today mm. and mm. Uh, they said that this is a very big deal and it's going to affect a lot of people. Mm. And right. Calvin, yeah. Mm. It doesn't sorry. even need to be the stuff worth thousands of dollars. People will slab things worth a lot less than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But m- my prediction of where this will go is, oh, someone's going to make a good fraud documentary about this, I say, as someone oh, who loves fraud documentaries yes, yes. and just stopped watching BitConned. This weekend? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Patrick is, Boyle is going to have a good time with this one. There is there is more to come on this. <laughs> more to come Cal- Calvin thinks this is the, the most boring story ever. Well, I do. But, but uh, you know, look, it, it, collecting and collectibles, this is this uh, – this is this parallel universe yes, yes. Uh, to the comic book world. I mean, if you're a, a person that's associated with comics, or even on a professional basis or just a nerd basis, uh, and, you know, people that maybe don't read comics or just read a little bit. I mean, there's usually two questions I often get. It's like, oh, you go to comics festivals, do you cosplay or uh, are your comics worth anything? 
So um, yeah, I understand why, that this is the baggage that the legacy comic book mm-hmm. industry brings with it. Uh, the collectibles is an incredibly important, um, I, I, I guess, spiritual part of American comics and certainly American superhero comics. So, yes, I do understand uh, that it is in our community, uh, you know, kind of a big deal. Um, uh, but I also think in some ways the collectibles market has, uh, uh, you know, it, it's contributed to a certain extent to the I think the suppression of, of, of a broader understanding of what the comics median can do in North America. But, yeah. you know, that's just me being, but, you know, well, yeah, but well, Calvin, you're not annoying. Wrong. You're, yeah. you're not you're not wrong. But I will say as someone who definitely is not always a fan of the the knock on influences of the collectibles market <laughs> as someone who's not always a fan of that, like. I'm very, very genuinely sorry to anyone who lost their collectibles. I do not wish that on anyone. Absolutely. But I will say if something would take CGC down a peg, I feel like it would only be good for the comic industry's creativity. And I I also think this really is part and parcel of the entire question mark over the direct market because a lot of comic shops sell, you know, sell back issues. They sell graded issues. Very valuable graded comics. And Can I point out Chuck Rosansky's uh, r- uh, remarks in your creator survey? Yeah. Oh, was that in the survey or was that in another piece? That no, you- that was in another piece because he, he wrote a, a very, you know. But that was very interesting, his comments about buying uh, old collections and how he's kind of overwhelmed uh, with these collections and, mm-hmm. and can't sell them. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, so yeah, this even though it's it is – Technically, kind of a uh, an offshoot or a parallel track to um, to what we're talking about, to you know, to what we talk about on this podcast. It reading is, material, it, yeah, yes, reading <laughs> material. It is definitely part of the economy of comics, yes, and absolutely. this could have huge ramifications. So, yes. uh, more to come on that. Absolutely. <laughs> and okay. well, as, yeah, and I I can only wait for the next, um, you know, uh, comics version of of number go up as a bestseller on on the new york times book book list yes well i don't know where we're at on time here um you know i I think we're probably around uh um 50 minutes so uh uh, maybe this maybe this is we'll save some briefs for next time because i i don't know about you guys but with all the kerfuffle here i'm a bit spent yeah yeah so, so maybe we'll wind up our our our, our 2024 kickoff episode, mm-hmm. and and if there are any other issues out there, we can talk about them on the next show. Yes. Yeah. Well, we should definitely talk about what we're looking forward to in 2024. Um, sure. Which, yeah. uh, you know, I'm still getting my toe. I'm still merging into the fast lane. <laughs> As far as that goes, so. All right. So. Well, I I guess that's it then. Um, I guess until next time, there will be. More. To. Come.